from time to time, everybody needs help. We're kind of proud and we don't want to accept that. We don't want to admit that. But from time to time, everybody needs help. Back when I was a kid, there was a commercial on TV. A lot of people made fun of it. But there was this lady, elderly lady, who fell. And she was in her home. And, and her, her key statement was, I've fallen and I can't get up. Sometimes that describes New Testament Christians. Because sometimes all of us need help. We fall, and by ourselves, we're not able to get back up. That's what this lesson is about this morning. It's like a swimmer that swims too far out into the ocean and gets caught maybe in, in, a, in a current or in the undertow, and you need somebody to come and rescue you. Or it's like someone who otherwise healthy. We exercise, we eat right, we're, we're doing healthy things, but something's going on with one of our internal organs and somebody has to go in and do surgery to fix what's wrong. We can't do it ourselves. The Bible tells us we're to love one another. The Bible tells us we're to be hospitable to one another. It tells us we're to care for one another and be kind to one another. But in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, through Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible also says we're supposed to restore one another. That is, we're to keep our eyes open and realize that somebody you know, somebody I know, needs help. Because sin is attractive and it's like a fish hook. It, it looks good to the fish at first. It's only after the fish takes a bite of the bait that it realizes I'm in trouble. And that happens to Christians and we have an obligation before God to think about what's going on with our brethren and to restore one another. All of us need help sometimes. I want us to think for just a minute about why God gave us the church. You ever think about that? Why does God give us the church? The Bible says that when those early Christians in Acts, when they repented of their sins, they believed in Jesus and they were baptized for the remission of their sins... The Bible calls baptism the new birth, and the Scripture says in Acts 2.47 that these people didn't join a church. No, they, they, didn't, they didn't get baptized and then join some church. Rather, they were baptized, and at the moment of their baptism, they received forgiveness, but they also were added by God to His church. See, nobody joins the church that you read about in the Bible. You're added to it. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. Why? Why does God do that? Why does God add you and add me to a group of people that already have done the same thing that I've done? Why does God do that? One reason is because it identifies us as genuine believers. When you think about the first century and what was going on in the first century, how do you know who belongs to Jesus? How do you know who's been added to his number? Well, you just go and find the assembly of the church. You find God's people. Oh, those are the genuine believers. They're the temple of God. They're the royal priesthood, the heavenly citizenship, Ephesians 2, verse 19. But not only that, the Bible says that the church provides encouragement and support because we all need help from time to time. And one of the purposes and the functions of the New Testament church is to provide for us help and encouragement. Does God have other ways of encouraging people? Absolutely he does. Are there other ways in which people can find support and they can find strength to serve God and please Jesus Christ? Absolutely. There are other ways, but the church is given to us primarily, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, for our encouragement so that we can build one another up in the most holy faith. 
The third reason why God gives us the church is because it gives us a place to serve. The Apostle Paul described the church as a body. It's got hands, it's got feet, it's got eyes, it's got knees, and everybody is a part of the body. And if one member suffers, Paul says, the whole body suffers. If one member is strengthened, the whole body is strengthened. It gives us a place to serve, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 27. Read that passage and think about God adds us to the church, adds us to his body, so that we can have a place to serve. I can minister to and serve other Christians. And then, number four, God adds us to his church because it brings needed accountability to our lives. Accountability. We are accountable to God, and some people just want to leave it at that. But the Bible teaches that not only are we accountable as Christians to God, I have to give an answer to God for the decisions I make and the words that I speak and the attitudes I I manifest, but I also am supposed to be accountable to the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who have the rule over you because they watch for your souls. There are people within the church known as elders who have the responsibility to watch for people's souls. There's accountability there. And not only that, but we have accountability to one another, as we're going to see in just a moment in Galatians chapter 6. You who are spiritual, go after, restore those who are wandering. And so God adds us to the body of Christ for all these reasons. And I want us to notice this morning as we think about restoring each other, as we think about people who might be wandering, I want us to notice, first of all, as we think about this lesson, the danger. There's a danger we have to recognize. When it comes to wandering, and it has to do with people who depart from God, people who depart from the fellowship of God's people, and and they don't show any intention. They're caught in the undertow of sin. No intention of ever returning to God, ever coming back to the people of God. When someone wanders, three, three, three things happen. Biblically, three things happen. When I wander from God and from his people, three things happen. Number one, I sin against God. Like the prodigal son who says to his father, Father, give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. And he goes into the far country. He sins against God himself. He sins against his father. But not only that, we sin against ourselves. When we wander, the scripture warns us, let us give more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When we sin, when we wander from God, we wander from Him, sin against Him, but we sin against ourselves as well. We cheat ourselves. We cheat ourselves of the hope and the future and the promises that God has laid up for us. But we also sin against others. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus asked an interesting question. There was a guy named Saul of Tarsus who had been arresting Christians and persecuting Christians. And when Jesus arrests Saul on the road to Damascus, he sees a bright light and Jesus appears to him. Jesus asked this question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When we mistreat the people of God, Jesus takes it personally. We sin against others by our actions, by our attitudes, by our words. We often are guilty in wandering from God of sinning against others. There's a real danger in wandering from the truth, in wandering from that which we know to be right. 
As you continue thinking about the danger, I just want to shed maybe a spotlight, a focus on what's happened over the last year or so. We are living in a day over the last year or so, a day in which not only are the dangers I just mentioned real, but we're living in a day of prolonged isolation. Right or wrong, it's true. It's what happens to people in the, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 warns us, don't let there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is still called today. Prolonged isolation is not good for what Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 teaches us to do. Not only that, we're living in a day of diminished accountability. Just like Abel and Cain back in the Old Testament book of Genesis, Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel and God confronted Cain. And Cain's first question was in Genesis 4 verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, what responsibility do I have to Abel? He's off shepherding the sheep. What's Abel doing? Am I my brother's keeper? That's a question that we need to ask and answer even today in a day of diminished accountability. We live in a day, brethren, of inaccurate perceptions. We have some inaccurate perceptions of what's going on among the people of God. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, the scripture says, the first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes to examine him. There's wisdom in those words. It hadn't been that long ago that there was a brother that came to me on a Sunday morning. First time he had been in the service here for, I don't know, many, many months. And you know what he said? He said, Brother John, we watch on the live stream all the time, and, and we really can't tell how many people are in the assembly because all the live stream shows is from Kevin Kane forward and from, from Mike down here forward. That's about all the live stream shows, and you don't see what else is happening in the auditorium. And not only that, but when the last amen is said, when the elder of the, of the day prays the closing prayer and everybody gets up and we greet each other, we have conversations with each other about all kinds of matters, all kinds of things. And when we're isolated from all that, we're going to develop by nature some inaccurate perceptions. Oh, and it's not even that. Think about this. What if, what if my friend Kevin, he walks by me in the foyer and he doesn't even look my way? I mean, he just, he just walks by, he's, he's got something on his mind. I might have an inaccurate perception. Think about it. Maybe he's mad at me. Maybe he's upset about something that I've said or done and he's just not willing to talk to me. We have all the time inaccurate perceptions, even in the best of circumstances. And it's dangerous for us as Christians because all of a sudden we can find ourselves saying, you know what? The church really doesn't have much interest in me. It's not true but we might believe that because of the way we perceive things. And then there's this. We live in a day of limited information. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 that he had left the Thessalonians behind and he said, I just got to where I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to know how you guys were doing. I had to know what was going on with the church. When I couldn't stand it any longer, he says, I sent Timothy to you so that Timothy could figure out what's happening with the church there in Thessalonica. We live in a day when all of these dangers have been exacerbated by some of the circumstances in our society. And we need to, as Christians, all of us, give an extra measure of attention to this idea 
There may be somebody caught in the undertow of sin that I know, that you know, and maybe it's you that we're describing this morning. Somebody caught in the undertow of sin. I've been caught up in all kinds of ungodly thoughts and all kinds of ungodly actions, and I need somebody to help me. It may be somebody that you know that's in that situation. It's dangerous to be there. Secondly, though, this morning, I want us to spend just a moment considering broadly through the Bible God's will, and then we're going to focus in on Galatians in our lesson. But just a couple of passages to ponder. Jesus spoke a parable in Luke 15, verses 3 through 5. The parable goes like this. What man of you that has a hundred sheep, you're a shepherd now, or an owner of sheep, if you've lost one of them, what man of you does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until you find it? And then when you find the one, you lay it on your shoulders and you rejoice. Jesus is describing his love for people who wander, who stray. If Jesus loves people that much, how much more should you and I love each other and love those who stray and wander? Jesus spoke that parable for that purpose. It's a motive question. What motivates me? Do I care about people? A second passage to consider, Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus summed up his life in just these few words. He said, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. Why did you come to earth, Jesus? I came because sheep were lost, because people were wandering. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and I wanted to save them. If that's Jesus' mission, should it be ours? Another passage to ponder. In James 5... Writing to Christians now, verses 19 and 20 says this. My brothers, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to people outside the church. He's talking to people who have obeyed the gospel and now they are walking as New Testament Christians. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. You see, we sin against God. We sin against ourselves. We sin against others. You might add even number four. We sin against the truth when we wander If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his ways, from his wandering, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When we get involved in restoring those who wander, the Bible tells us that we are saving their souls from death. They've fallen and they can't get up and they need someone to help them. And we're saving them and covering a multitude of sins when that happens. Another passage to ponder, Jude 22 and 23. Jude writes about people who are falling away because of false teachers. And he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Some people just get caught up in these false things that are being said. And then he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are differing degrees to which people get caught up in things that are wicked and things that are false. And the book of Jude tells us we ought to use discernment and wisdom in how we handle people in restoring them back to a relationship with God. Those are some passages to ponder. If you don't already have your Bible open to Galatians chapter 5, go ahead and do that now. And what we're going to do with the rest of this lesson, points 3 through 5 is we're going to talk about this particular section of Scripture because what Galatians 5, 26 through 6, 5 does is it shows us how to go about this process. 
When somebody is wandering from God, when somebody is caught up in the undertow of sin, when somebody needs spiritual surgery, they can't operate on themselves. Somebody has to come in and help them. When that happens, this passage shows us how to go about doing that. And by the way, I want you to notice very carefully, as you look at Galatians 5.26 through 6.5, I want you to notice that the word elder is not found in this passage. A lot of times when somebody's wandering from the truth, when somebody is straying, we look to the shepherds because God put in his church, as we've mentioned, people who are pastors or shepherds or elders. All three words describe the same office. But the Bible doesn't use any of those words here. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 6 verse 1, the passage is talking to people who are spiritual. You see that? You who are spiritual, restore such a one. So whose obligation is it? If my brother is wandering, am I my brother's keeper? I can use Cain's question. This passage is saying, yes, we have an obligation to when we see somebody who is lost, who is away from God, and that's not where they're supposed to be, and that's not where they said they wanted to be. We have an obligation, not just the elders, but everybody we have an obligation to each other to restore one another. And so as we think about the practical side of all this, I want us first of all to notice Galatians 5.26. And I want us to notice that what this verse does, it really belongs with chapter 6 in my judgment. But what this verse does is it shows us that the first thing we ought to do is avoid mistreating people. Listen to what it says, Galatians 5.26. Let us not become conceited, full of ourselves, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. If I'm going to get busy about this work of restoring people who are wandering, I need to give serious thought to how not to treat other people. Listen to me. Because oftentimes... When you go to try to talk to somebody who is straying, it's like trying to help sometimes, and I mean no disrespect in saying this, it's like trying to help a wounded animal. Have you ever seen a dog or a cat that's, that's been terribly, horribly wounded, and you try, to maybe, you try to maybe fix what's wrong, you try to help that animal? How does the animal respond typically? Oh, it's not fun. And what you have to do as you go and try and help this wounded animal is you have to understand going into it that there's going to be some conflict, there's going to be some pain, and there's going to be some difficulty lying ahead. And if we're not careful, when we try to help our brethren, we may well be guilty of mistreating them by some sins that are mentioned in this verse. Notice, do not be conceited. You think about it. Well, I've got my act together. I haven't wandered from God. I haven't turned away from him. I'm going to go help somebody who should know better. And maybe, they, maybe they're doing some things and I don't agree with, and, and I, think that, I think that I've got a better way of doing it than they do. We need to be careful. Pride goes before destruction. And we may well destroy some relationships with people. We may well destroy some people's faith. If we go into a situation like this and we think that we've got all the answers and we've got everything worked out, if people would just listen to me, everything would be better in their lives. Do not become conceited in the way that you treat one another. 
And then Paul gets even more specific in Galatians 5.26. He gives you two of those I-N-G words. And those tell you how you might be conceited specifically. He says we might be provoking one another. We come to somebody and we've got an attitude of superiority. I can't believe that you've fallen into this sin. I can't believe that you're living this way, that you're making this decision. I mean, this is just wrong. This is irrational. And I would never do this. And it's just like trying to help a wounded animal. How does that help? Provoking, pushing at things that really need to be dealt with and handled delicately. When you go to the doctor, aren't you thankful that the doctor doesn't always use a scalpel every time you go to see him? Sometimes he just asks some questions, and sometimes he just maybe does something that isn't all that invasive. Sometimes we need to be very gentle in how we handle others, not provoking with an attitude of superiority. I'm better than you, and I can prove it. But it also says not envying one another, an attitude of inferiority. You go to see somebody who's wandering and maybe they've got a really nice house and they've got a really nice car. They've got a family that you only wish that you had. And you look at all that they have and you kind of look at, at the blessings that they have in their lives and you think, they've got so much more than me. So much that I wish I had. I I envy that. And maybe we even bring that up in our conversation with them. I envy what, what you have and how can you act this way before God and before God's people? I mean, look at, don't do that. What really this passage is saying is, if you're going to try to help somebody, don't try to compare yourself to them for good or for ill. For greater or for lesser, don't try to compare yourself to somebody else. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us that when we compare ourselves by other people, we are foolish, we are unwise. Do not compare yourself to the person you're trying to help because you're going to end up with pride in your heart and you're going to end up provoking and envying and it's not going to lead to good things. We need to think about how we go about approaching other people. What I want us to do now is I want us to skip verse 1 for just a moment because verse 1's got the real practical brass tack stuff. We're going to save that for last. I want us to look at Galatians 6, verses 2 through 5. And I want us to look at how we can help people in appropriate ways. Just some broad guidelines. If I'm going to help somebody who's wandering, I need to be careful that I don't provoke and I don't go to them with conceit. But I also need to think about how I can really, genuinely help them. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. The scripture says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? The law of Christ is love one another. In fact, he told you that back in Galatians 5 and verse 14. The law of Christ is fulfilled in this one word, that you love one another. So bear one another's burdens. It's one of the ways we love each other. And then it goes on to say, for if anyone thinks he is something, now we're talking about pride again. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in another. For each will have to bear his own load. 
And that almost sounds contradictory. The last verse, verse 5, says bear your own load. The first verse here, verse 2, says bear one another's burdens. So what, which is it? Let's break this down for just a moment. Watch. This passage is telling us, number one, that we are to come to our brethren in a spirit of friendship, in a spirit of kindness, and listen to me, in a spirit that is willing to listen. Just actively listen. Bear one another's burdens. Everybody without exception, everybody that has ever left Jesus Christ, everybody that has ever left the people of Jesus Christ has a story to tell. Did you hear what I just said? Everybody that has ever wandered has a story to tell. And they'll tell you about their burden. And they'll tell you about what's troubling them. And they'll tell you about why they've made this decision. And what this passage is saying is, we, before we start talking, we ought to make it our default to listen to what they have to say. And to listen and try to understand from their perspective why they're doing what they're doing, where they're coming from in their thinking, and how they got to where they are. We don't listen very well, especially when we think we've got all the answers and we could just fix this if they just listen to us. Bear one another's burdens. There are some burdens that people need help with. Burdens that are too heavy to bear. And that doesn't mean that you got to fix everything for them. It means that you listen empathetically. And if you've ever really been struggling with a burden, doesn't it feel good when somebody who cares about you just listens? Even counselors and therapists have realized that just listening to people actually makes a huge difference for good. Just listening to what they have to say and letting them say things out loud and not just to themselves, it does good. And so we come to people in a spirit of friendship and in a spirit of kindness because we love them, we love their souls, and we can't stand to see them making the decisions they're making. Active friendship, burden-bearing. But then if you look at verse 3, we go to them in a proper self-conception. Don't think too much of yourself. Definitely don't do this. Definitely don't get it in your head that if I'll just go see brother so-and-so, if I'll just go see sister so-and-so, and if I'll sit down with them, boy, that's going to fix everything. Do not get that in your head. Because people sometimes, despite our best efforts, will continue to make sinful, wicked decisions. You are not anybody's Savior, and neither am I. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and that's the person that needs to be emphasized in our conversation. That's the person that people need to be restored to first. Because they've wandered from the truth, and they've wandered from Him and he's the one, as we've sung so many songs this morning about how he's the one who is tenderly calling us home. So it's not about me and what I want. It's about him and what he wants. Proper self-conception. And then look at verses 4 and 5. This thing about each one shall bear his own load and each one shall have his own work to do. You know what this passage is saying? You have a sphere of influence. You have a relationship with somebody. 
I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you this morning know of a brother or sister in Christ who is wandering? I'm not just talking about people who are, who are concerned about the pandemic and they're, they're just not assembling. I'm talking about people who are wandering from Christ. They are leaving their faith and they're leaving their convictions and they don't, those things don't matter to them anymore. How many of you know somebody like that? I'm not asking you for a show of hands, but I suspect most everybody knows somebody like that. You have a relationship with that person that is unique. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend that you've spent many, many hours visiting with. Maybe it's someone that you have a business relationship with. You work with this person. Whoever it is, you have a unique relationship. And the idea of each one bearing his own load is this. When I have this relationship and I have this access to a person that maybe other people don't have access to, I have responsibility to them. God expects me, because I'm interested in spiritual things, he expects me to be concerned about this person's soul and don't just sit back and say, well, you know, the elders haven't tried to contact this person. They haven't reached out to them that I'm I'm aware of. And I guess if they're concerned enough, they will. Each one shall bear his own load. Look at what God has given you. Look at the relationships and the people in your life and ask the question, is there someone who needs help? And I may be the only one who's close enough to help. Each one shall bear his own load. Now, look at Galatians 6, verse 1. The passage says we are to restore people carefully. We're talking about spiritual surgery here. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, talking to the church again. We're not dealing with people who are outside of Christ. We're not dealing with people who are lost in the sense that they've never obeyed the gospel this morning. He's talking to Christians And he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Four observations here. Notice that there is a situation caught in a transgression. Have you ever noticed how sin has a way of multiplying how I commit one kind of sin and I'm doing one kind of thing that I know displeases God and and I just persist in that. I just keep on doing it. But all of a sudden, there's all these extra sins that that are kind of attached to it. There's a really dangerous situation developing in this person's life. He is caught in the transgression and maybe he can't see the way out. Maybe he doesn't know what's the next step. I would have to humble myself. I would have to swallow my pride if I ever wanted to come back to God. That's tough. And and the devil makes you think that once you're caught in sin, he makes you think there's no way back. There's no way back to God, no way back to people of God. So the situation is there's a brother who's caught in a transgression and then there's an obligation He doesn't say elders specifically, although they do have an obligation. They're going to give account. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. But no, the passage here says, you who are spiritual. By the way, he does not say, you who are perfect, restore such a one. In other words, don't wait until you feel like you've got everything together. I'm a perfect Christian. There is no such thing. Rather... Someone who is spiritual is a person who is concerned about God and the things of God. Someone who is spiritual is someone who is concerned about spiritual things. If you're spiritual in your mind and you're thinking, you have an obligation to this person. 
Notice next, there's an approach. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Not provoking, not envying, not being conceited, not having too high a view of myself or too low a view of someone else. We're looking at the situation realistically through the eyes of Christ and in a spirit of gentleness, we want to restore this person. Be gentle. The fruit of the Spirit, among other things, is gentleness. Galatians 5, verse 23. Interesting how a spirit of gentleness goes with being a Christian. And when we're talking about conflict, which is what this is, and when we're talking about having a discussion that's difficult, which is what this is going to be, gentleness is the order of the day. In a spirit of gentleness, that's your approach. And then notice number four, the objective. Restore such a one. The objective, the goal, is always good to keep in mind. My goal is not to win an argument. My goal is not to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. My goal is not to make sure that they know how wrong they've been. My goal is to restore such a one. What can I say from God's word, from God's heart, that's going to help people understand I need to return to God? I need to come back to my relationship with him because the only hope any of us have in this life or in the next is found in Jesus Christ and people must be restored to that. That's the practical side of it. Restore people carefully. But brothers and sisters and friends, this is as much a ministry for Christians as it is to love one another or as it is to preach a sermon or as it is to serve as an elder or a deacon, to restore those who are wandering is what God expects of every New Testament Christian who's interested in spiritual things. Who do you know that needs to be restored? Who do you know that needs to have this kind of conversation? Who do you know that's struggling and needs help with a burden they're bearing? God expects us to love each other, to care for each other, Because Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't want even one of his sheep to be lost. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not yet obeyed the gospel. You're not yet a New Testament Christian. The way that people became Christians in the first century is the exact same way people become Christians today. What they did in the first century was this. They heard the message about Jesus and how Jesus is the answer to sin and there's no forgiveness and there's no access to God and anyone but him. They listened to that message and then they believed it. They said, I agree with that. I agree that Jesus is my only hope. And when they did that, they cried out and they said to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the apostles said, repent, Acts 2.38, And let all of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And so what those people in the first century did was they believed in Jesus and they repented of their sins and they were baptized for the remission of their sins. And the same thing can be true in your life. You can believe in Jesus and you can repent of your sin and you can be baptized for the remission of your sin. And when you do that, Jesus forgives you of your sin and he adds you. You don't join. He adds you to this body of believers known as the New Testament church. Can we help you to make that decision this morning? Or maybe you need to respond and you'd like to ask for prayers. Whatever your need is this morning, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?